0: All right, Uh, this is the reading of the word from Genesis uh, 25. Uh, Bear with me, these names are difficult. Okay, these are the generations of Isaac. Yeah, of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham's... Abraham... Fathered Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Araman of Padin Amar, the sister of Laban, the Araman, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah. His wife conceived. The child struggled together with, within her. Wait. Okay. The child struggled together with her, and she said, "If this, if it is thus, why is this happening to me?" So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her two nations are in your womb and the two people from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger when her days sorry when her days to give birth were completed behold there were two twins in her womb the first came out red all of his body a hairy cloak and they called his name Ishmael. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate, of, he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau saw, said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Tell, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die, and what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now, for he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau sold, uh, despised his birthright. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Our
1: God stands forever. let's pray together Father in heaven we are thankful for uh, your word that you have given to us so graciously um, that we can come before it every Sunday and to learn from it and to have you speak to us uh, from it once again. And so, God, we pray that you would do that right now as we um, look at this chapter in Genesis 25. And I pray that you would uh, open our eyes and, uh, and our hearts and our minds to behold the, the wonder and mystery of the gospel, uh, even here in the Old Testament in Genesis 25, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you don't have your Bibles open, just go ahead and turn to Genesis 25, and we will be, um, we'll move around a little bit during, move around in the Bible a little bit. I'm not going to ask you to get up and move, but that would be awkward. Um, but having your Bibles open to Genesis 25, just so you can follow along and, and have things be a little bit more clear to you as, as, as uh, I preach from from this particular passage. But. Backing up just a little bit um, from what Brett read for us in, in verses 12 through 18, I want us to first see this connection that is made with the second part of Genesis that we looked at last year in 2022 as we move into this final section, this third section of Genesis. Because in the second section of Genesis, the second part of Genesis, promises have been made by God to Abraham concerning both of his sons, Not just Isaac. So if you remember, Ishmael was born uh, from uh, uh, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And then you have Isaac, of course, who is the child of Abraham and Sarah. But a promise was given concerning both of them. Now we know the promise that was given to Isaac, and that's what we're going to be looking at uh, over the next several weeks. But in, in chapter 21, verse 18 of Genesis... God says to Ishmael's mother, Hagar... If you remember, this is when she is sent away out into the wilderness. She, is, she thinks that uh, her son's going to die, and she's going to die, and so she just kind of walks away from him. And this is the, these are the words that God says to Hagar. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And here in chapter 25, verses 12 through 18 we see God not only fulfill his promise to Ishmael, but this also reminds us that while technically uh, Ishmael is the oldest child of Abraham, he is not the son of promise. That title belongs to his younger brother, Isaac, which is a pattern we'll see in the main text this morning when we are introduced to Isaac's uh, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. But it's also a pattern that we'll continually see in Genesis. And we've already seen it in Genesis, which is simply this phrase that I like to repeat often, which is, the Lord's work and the Lord's way. Continually that is happening. And that means that, that, that God's sovereign plan tends to be much different than what we probably have in mind. And we have to remember that God is always intent on His purposes in our world, and in the lives of His people, especially so in the life of His his people, and that includes you and me. And nothing can stand in the way of God's sovereign plan. And His sovereign plan uh, may not look like any plan that you have concerning your own life. Taking care of aging parents may not be in your plan, but it's happening. Having a surprise baby in your 40s may not be in your plans, but it happened. Watching your kids walk through suffering and walk through hard things may not have probably was never in your plans, but it might be happening. Unexpected moves. I know with the military that happens a lot. Uh, Losing a job that you thought was secure. Uh, Living far away from your family. I know many of you who live far away from their families now being single longer than you expected. None of those probably were in your plans. And yet as hard as all of those things are, you can have courage in the midst of them, knowing that God's plan is better. Because his sovereign purposes are for your good and his glory. So as we march through this final section of Genesis over the next several months, I want you to keep your eyes open to this glorious truth because it keeps showing up because you wouldn't want it any other way. You don't want your plan for your life. You want God's plan for your life. So I want us to see this in the text today by looking at it in three ways. One is God's sovereignty in provision Two is God's sovereignty in struggle. And three is God's sovereignty in conflict. So God's sovereignty in provision, in struggle, and in conflict. So first, God's sovereignty in provision in verses 19 through 21. Look there with me again. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armean, of Padan Aram the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. So here again we are introduced to Isaac, the promised one, Abraham and Sarah's only child together, a child God promised to them at a point in life where you and I would never dream of making a promise like this to anyone in our lives. Because they were both at an age, in their 90s, where conceiving a child was impossible. At least to them it was. And yet here we are reading about this child and seeing God's promise to Abraham uh, begin to take shape. Isaac has married Rebekah, who we know to be God's choice for him based on what we saw in chapter 24 of Genesis. If you remember when Abraham's servant was sent to seek a wife for Isaac, uh, he prayed to the Lord to to lead him to this particular woman, and he even gave gave it a test. If she comes out and waters the camels and does all of these things, this this is the woman for Isaac. And it happened exactly like that. And so once he finds Rebecca, he immediately affirms God's choice through worship and prayer and a prayer of praise. He says these words when he's explaining this to, uh, to Rebecca's family. He says, Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son." And despite this amazing God-ordained marriage of the promised one, who a great nation was to be birthed, we find out in verse 21 that his new bride is barren. She is unable to have children. Now this throws a wrench in the whole plan of God, it seems. If this is the promised child, Isaac and Rebekah was so clearly chosen to be his wife, Why is this happening? How are nations to arise from this line if the promised one is unable to have a child to carry on the promise? So one theological observation that we need to see here is that even though Isaac is Abraham's son and Rebekah was carefully chosen to be his bride, these facts about them these true realities about them aren't sufficient to produce the next air of the promised blessing. It doesn't happen automatically just because they are chosen in this way. You see, to to, to only depend upon the physical realities of what you can see and uh, touch and hear around you is to completely miss the spiritual realities that are just as present as the physical. And the spiritual reality that could have been missed here is that divine intervention was still required for an heir to the promise to come. And so, unlike his father and mother, when they discovered this, uh, this that they were that their their own barrenness, uh, and they take matters into their own hand. And uh, Sarah gives uh, Abraham his, her maid servant and says, "Here, have a child with her," because God's not giving us a child, obviously. Isaac, on the other hand takes matters to the Lord in prayer. Showing us that at some level, Isaac understands that apart from divine intervention, none of this is happening. That that God had to intervene, uh, and and it was needed and necessary in order for them to even conceive a child. So I wonder if just taking that uh, principle, have you ever been in a place like this? Where at one moment, God's hand seems to be clearly leading you. Where doors are being opened, opportunities are had, God is providing for you clearly. Nothing is in question. You're saying, this is the Lord's leading. It is obvious. And then in the next moment, you're questioning all of your life choices. Did we do this right? Did I make this, did I make, did I, did I choose rightly here? Is this the right person? Is this the right job? Is this the right house? Even the ones that you believed were so clearly from God, you begin to doubt. And yet now you feel like a fog has settled on you or a wall has been put in front of you and you have nowhere else to go. The late pastor and preacher James Montgomery Boyce uh, says this in his commentary on these verses when he says if you are experiencing a barren period or things don't seem as clear to you, he says this. This does not mean that God has abandoned you or even that you are less well off than others. God is teaching you to depend on him. He is showing you that he is more interested in what is happening inside you than what is happening around you. So Isaac has the right response in verse 21, doesn't he? And the Lord grants his prayer and Rebekah conceives not one, but two children. But before we get ahead of ourselves and thinking Isaac prayed and the next day his wife got pregnant and it was just all of a sudden and there was no waiting period, we have to look at verse 26 that says, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. He was 40 when they got married. He was 60 when the twins were born. So that means Isaac prayed, hopefully he was continuing to pray about this, not just one time, but Isaac prayed 20 for 20 years for a child. Isaac and Rebecca waited 20 years for a child until finally God answers his prayer. And because they're human, I'm sure in that waiting period, in that twenty years, uh, that time frame, they questioned God's plan, plan, much like uh, Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah, did. I'm sure they doubted God's promises to them. That they lay awake at night, saying, "Was this the right decision?" Isaac thinking, "Was this? Is this truly the right bride? Or did we get it wrong?" And yet again, our only response to this is to look again at the reality of God's sovereign purposes, the Lord's work in the Lord's way. So, this means God's plan won't necessarily look like what you imagine it to look like, nor will it look like your neighbor's plan, because sometimes we like to look over at our neighbor and say, I want that. I want their peace, I want whatever, their prosperity, I want whatever it is that they have. It's probably not going to look like that. But you know what it will look like? God's plan for you. For you. And this is what we've seen throughout Genesis and what we are now seeing in the life of Isaac and Rebekah and their children. So right from the very beginning, we learn that like Isaac's birth, the birth of his twins are a supernatural provision. It's obvious. God had to intervene for these children to come into the world. These children were to be considered as God's sovereign provision. That's what Isaac and Rebecca needed to see. So two observations that are important for us to see here that have massive New Testament gospel implications concerning supernatural intervention. So first, the first thing we need to know is if God does not open the womb, the promise ceases to be. And this is true for Sarah, or it was true for Sarah, it's true for Rebecca, and it's going to be true later for Leah, as we'll see, it's going to be true later for Tamar, it's going to be true later for Rahab and Ruth, and all the way down the family line of promise to Mary who we would say is the most important of all the supernatural births in the line of promise because she actually gives birth to the promise, Jesus. The snake crusher promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the promised offspring of Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, who would bless the nations. God's intervention sovereignly provides the provision for our salvation. And that highlights the second New Testament implication, which is that the people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are all born of the Spirit. So if you are a Christian, that did not happen naturally. You didn't just kind of walk into a church and then boom, you're a Christian. It didn't happen like that. It came about supernaturally by divine intervention. So your salvation, you being born again, is a supernatural provision. Jesus says this in John 1, 12-13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a supernatural birth and then if you remember just a couple of chapters more in john chapter 3 jesus has this very discussion with nicodemus this was his question how are we born again how can i enter back into my mother's womb a second time and be physically born again that's what nicodemus's mind went to was a physical birth and jesus says no no nicodemus it is a spiritual birth he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says this in Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And then this continues to be the New Testament teaching, the New Testament do- do- doctrine uh, that, that Peter later tells his readers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. You are born of the Spirit, not of man. And all of this begins with Abraham and Sarah and then continues through Isaac and Rebekah. That God sovereignly and graciously removes Rebecca's barrenness so that the promised line of Christ continues so we've seen God's sovereignty and his gracious provision of offspring but now we see God's sovereignty in the midst of struggle so his, his sovereignty in the midst of, of provision is something we enjoy and it's 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 wonderful because God is giving us something he is providing us with something but it's harder to see God's sovereignty in the midst of struggle so look at verses 22 through 26 The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. So in this second part of the text, we're introduced to the major tension of the narrative, which is the turmoil that is happening within, physically happening within Rebekah's womb. The the intensity comes in verse 22. The author tells us, the children struggled together within her. So not only has God answered Isaac's prayer 20 years later after he started praying, praise the Lord, he did this, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing, but when he gets an answer to his prayer, it begins to cause his wife problems. Now before some of you moms start thinking, you know, get over it Rebecca we all feel like our babies are struggling uh inside of us that's nothing new especially if you've had twins can I get an amen back there know that this is no mild discomfort that she is experiencing here the Hebrew word that's used here to describe the struggling in the womb signifies crushing or oppression so, of course, Rebecca doesn't know this in the moment, which is why she says in verse 22, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? As if to say, if this is of God, if this is such an answer to our prayers, why am I suffering in this way? Something Signaling that something that she believes that something may be wrong. In the divine provision, that maybe this isn't of God. Maybe, maybe we got it wrong again. And I'm sure you've had thoughts like this. I know I have. Maybe you prayed for a spouse, and and God answered that prayer. And then when you have your first huge fight, you might think, if this person is God's answer to, to my prayers, why is this happening to us? Why are we in conflict? Why are we struggling? Or maybe when you've been given the promotion at your job that you've been praying for and your arrival in your new position, the first day of your uh, new position, you are immediately met with stress and hard coworkers, And you begin to doubt God's answer to you. And so what we see in Rebecca's situation is that she cries out to God with her question, why is this happening to me? And God answers her in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now I don't know how that fell on Rebecca's ears. I'm sure it was strange um, to think that your 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 sons would be in this conflict once they came out of the womb, but it is something she holds on to, as we'll see later. But this is the central point of our passage. This morning, as well as what sets the stage for the next seven chapters of Genesis. Because the answer from God that Rebecca receives is his sovereign plan for her boys, even before they come out of the womb. And it's here that we want to turn to Romans chapter 9 that Josh read for us earlier. Uh, Because in Romans 9, you have Paul's commentary on these verses in Genesis chapter 25. So if you have a Bible, turn there to Romans 9, in the New Testament, after the Gospels, after Acts, just kind of keep your finger there. We'll we'll read some verses there in a minute. But but as you see the the literal physical struggle of Jacob and Esau during their birth, you can also see God's sovereign hand already orchestrating the outcome of this struggle. So culturally speaking, the firstborn in this day, uh, Esau, was the natural choice to receive the blessing. He was the firstborn. He was the older twin. Now, if you think that's, you're like, I thought twins were the same age. My, I am a twin. My brother is two minutes older than I. He is my wise older brother. <laughs> In the same way, Esau was the first one to come out, and so Esau is the oldest And he is is given the the, the natural uh, blessing that comes with being the older son. But he's also his father's choice, as we'll see as the story develops further. But according to verse 23, he was not God's choice. And that's what's most important. God chose Jacob. So by sovereign election, God declares that the promised line would belong to the younger son, not the older son. So this teaches us two things here. First, it teaches us that God has a right to choose whom he will and reject whom he will. This is what Paul's commentary is about in Romans chapter 9. He's explaining why God has dealt with the Jewish people as he has, and as he does this, he demonstrates that salvation is always always the accomplishment of God's grace alone. And so the second thing God's choice over Jacob over Esau tells us is that salvation is not something we are born into. It's not something we and you inherit from your parents it's it's not anything that you can earn through good behavior or good works these are the things the jews actually believed and why paul says the words he says in romans chapter 9 verses 6 through 13 and as paul is saying these things he is using the story of genesis 25 that we're reading right now as his backdrop so look there with me at romans 9 verses 6 through 13 Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So if you catch Paul's argument there, Paul is saying, the Jews are saying, but we have been physically born of Abraham. He is, we are blood-related, so to speak. And Paul says no. That makes no difference. Verse 8. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And those words are in Malachi, I I believe. Now this teaching did not go well amongst uh, Paul's Jewish listeners, uh, just like it doesn't go well in our day uh, too, right? Right? Because what Paul was doing was striking at the very core of what these Jews believed. We are God's children because we are physical descendants of Abraham. How dare you say anything else otherwise? To which Paul is saying, No, it is is not the children of the flesh that are saved, but the children of the promise. And this is no new teaching by Paul. Paul did not uh, invent this as he's writing the book of Romans, as some, I think, believe. He did not create this doctrine. Jesus himself taught this very doctrine to the Jews when they responded to his teaching that salvation is in him alone. In John chapter 8, verses 33 through uh, 44 in John 8, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. They're very confused. And then in verses 56-58 of John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So here's what we learn in Genesis 25. You can flip back to Genesis 25. Verses 22-26. through 26. And the biblical pattern that was set forth from the beginning of the line of promise and will carry on until Jesus returns. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all who come after them are not brought into the promised line of Christ based on family lineage, physical birth, cultural traditions, who they are, their morality, their spiritual practices, or any future good that they will do. The choosing of the younger son Jacob over the older son Esau illustrates this very well, that it's all an act of grace alone from God. James Montgomery Boyce again said, All is of grace All that you are, all that you will become, all that you have, all that you will ever attain, all is due to God's grace. Above all, salvation is due entirely to God's grace, so that it depends on nothing in human beings. So we've seen God's sovereignty in His provision, we've seen God's sovereignty in the struggle, and lastly, we see God's sovereignty in conflict. Not that God's sovereignty is in conflict, it never is, but that it works in what we would see as and define as conflict. Look at verses 27 through 34. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Re- Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way thus esau despised his birthright so in these eight verses we immediately see the fruit of god's word to rebecca from verse 23 and the first observation to make is that neither one of these men jacob or nor esau uh, are, are in any sort of way that we would call admirable We wouldn't say, let's look up to these guys and do the things that they have just done to each other. I mean, you think about it. Esau is quick to give up his birthright, his inheritance essentially, for some lentil soup. I mean, lentil soup is good on a fall day, but it is not that good. And then Jacob is quick to use his shrewdness, coupled with his apparently mad cooking skills to take his older brother's birthright. Neither are admirable. But even so, even so, both are not admirable here. Even so, this part of the narrative is slanted toward Esau's choice. Because we learn that God's choice of Jacob over Esau did not run contrary to either Esau's desires or Jacob's desires. Esau, even though he had the right of the firstborn, according to verse 34, he despised his firstborn right. So this is also confirmed in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, when the author uses Esau as a description of what not to do when it comes to obtaining the grace of God. He writes this in verses 15 through 17 of Hebrews 12. And so in equal manner to Esau's rejection of his birthright, Jacob goes to great lengths to gain the birthright. So we can say that God uses Jacob's shrewd actions as the the occasion to reveal his brother's true nature. So when it comes to Esau losing his birthright and consequently losing his blessing, there was no injustice Dealt here to him by God. This wasn't God being unfair to Esau. He didn't have a chance. Esau rejected it. His heart was already hardened towards his birthright because he didn't see what good it was to bring him. Despising it. He sells it in the moment of, his, of, of great weakness. What good is this to me if I die? So I think this is a good point to evaluate whether or not you are despising the grace of God offered to you, or are you striving for it as Jacob did? Because that's what's being offered to Esau. It's the grace of God. In Hebrews 12, the verses that immediately follow the verses I just read concerning Esau, there is an appeal to the Hebrew readers to press on to faith in Christ Jesus. These words are written with the backdrop of Israel after the exodus from Egypt, if you remember that. And they are standing at the mountain of God and they are trembling before God as he gives the law to Moses. They are in terror over it because it was a terrifying experience. But the author of Hebrews is saying, there is no terror now in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words in Hebrews 12, 18 through 25. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, But you have come to Mount Zion For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So let these words act as a warning to us all as we begin this last section of Genesis. That we would not refuse the one who is speaking to us. That we would hold tightly to our birthright that is ours by faith alone in Christ alone as the Son of God and your Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you offer to us this gift of grace that you, that you make, it, uh, make us able to become uh, children, sons and daughters of the promise, the same promise line that, that uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and all of the many uh, saints, this great cloud of witness, witnesses are a part of, that you give us the opportunity and the privilege to be part of that line in Christ. And so, God, I pray that we would not be a people who despise your grace but that we would be a people who strive after it. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.